Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined again by one of my postmodern conservative friends from back in our days at National Review, Pete Spiliakos. Pete, we have been doing conversations on the crisis in institutions, in our elite parties and our extra-partisan elites running the country, more or less, if anybody is running the country, for years now. You've been for years a columnist for First Things. I am writing more and more on politics and policy for law and liberty. And of course, we both wrote at National Review during our Pomocon days. And I think we're broadly reformist really sympathetic when that was a thing to reform conservatism as a movement to people like uh, Rehan Salam and Ross Douthat and Yuval Levine. But we also thought that you need a lot more populism and a lot more politics and uh, not just wonkery, although, of course, institutional competence is very important and sorely missed in, in 2020. And so we've had years of these conversations and of op-eds trying to deal with the crisis of the Republican Party. I remember talking to you years back after 2016. What is this Republican Party like now that in 2016 just won all the offices in the land at every level in this historic achievement? And I remember both of us thought that this might not be as good as it sounds. This might be the Jimmy Carter Democrats of 76 just getting ready for internist in strife and political suicide. And to some extent, this seems to be indeed ongoing. For a party that won everything, as I said, the Republicans, especially in 2020, are pretending that they don't even exist, that they're somehow in opposition, and they're ducking for cover at that. Quite strange, since if they did act as though they were in opposition, they would be constantly complaining about how screwed up the system is. But what they are is actually mostly silent, as the nation racks up crisis after crisis, and none of these things seem to be getting solved through the spring, now into the summer, even though we all know this is an election year, this is actually all going to come to a vote in the national decision. So we have years and years of preparation for the madness, worrying about what is coming, from this incredibly oligarchic, libertarian, corporate-dominated Republican Party. And now, here it is. So, I think we're actually adequately prepared to say that uh, we have seen the madness, we have talked about it, written about it, warned about it, and yet it is still happening and we have to somehow deal with it. That's all by way of, hello, how are you? How are you doing, Pete? Hey, Titus, I'm doing pretty good. And, um, you know, I got to say, when it comes to the Republican Party, there's some good and there's a lot bad. I mean, like Mike DeWine has done a reasonably good job of handling the coronavirus as a governor, and uh, the Republican Party would have been better served if Donald Trump had sounded a lot more like Mike DeWine over the last four or five months. They might actually be in a decently good position. I mean, another one of the problems they have is that Donald Trump just sucks all the air out of the room. In other words, it almost doesn't matter what one senator or 10 senators or 15 senators says, because all the attention is going to go to Donald Trump. And not only that, if a Republican senator says something sensible, as more mainstream political institutions become openly partisan and openly propaganda, anything good that's said is going to be ignored. Anything sensible that's said is going to be ignored. Donald Trump can go above that. Donald Trump can speak over their heads. He can, in a sense, make them cover what he says, even if they're going to lie about it later. Your average Republican senator doesn't. So if your average Republican senator says something intelligent, it's going to be like a rock falling into the ocean. It's going to sink to the bottom. So that's one problem. But another problem that they have, which goes beyond Donald Trump, is that, you know, four years ago, I wrote that one of the problems the Republican Party has is that with the decline of social capital among wage earners, that the perspective of Republican politicians is more and more formed by their experience with the business lobbies. 
And they internalize the perspective of the business lobbies. They internalize the priorities of the business lobbies. And when I wrote that, it was four years ago, I just looked it up. I was thinking that over time, they would learn and make adjustments for that reality. They would think to themselves, all right, this is a problem that I have. I have to learn to listen better. I have to make an effort to listen to other people because they're just not going to come to me. Like, you know, chambers of commerce have lunches. And at the chambers of commerce, people will say, hey, there's a problem I have with tax. There's a problem I have with regulation. This helps a Republican politician form his opinions and his priorities. That they would seek out feedback from other sectors of society because the way society has developed, they're not going to get that feedback unless they're seeking it out intentionally. And if anything, they're getting worse rather than better. What you're seeing is that as the omni-shambles continues to get worse, they are triaging their priorities and putting not just the priorities of the business lobbies, but their own radicalized versions of the priorities of the business lobbies. In other words, you had like Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, and he said he was, you know, those riots all over the place. There were protests all over the place. And what Ron Johnson said was, hey, why don't we uh, deal with this by making Juneteenth a holiday? And, you know, while we don't want to erase our history, let's also get rid of Columbus Day as a holiday. And if you want to imagine, like, the ultimate expression of the Republican Party as being petty, business-oriented, cheap, that would pretty much be, like, the picture of the Republican Party in that statement. Because when they said to Ron Johnson, hey, dude, why get rid of Columbus Day? You said you're not getting rid of history, but you're getting rid of Columbus Day, so obviously you are. Ron Johnson's answer was, well, it would cost $600 million in order to have an extra federal holiday. So we just can't have it. So we, we had to make a choice. Now, here's the thing. This pathetic display of cravenness and futility, it wasn't like the Chamber of Commerce asked him not to give federal workers a day off in October. Nobody asked him. He just internalized their perspective so completely that, you know, oh, protesters want something? Well, why don't we give them something as long as we don't theoretically give something away to our donors? I want to say the possibility that at some point in the future, their donors might have to pay an extra $5 in taxes because the federal workforce productivity is marginally lower. That was the main priority, more important than Columbus Day, more important than the protesters, more important than anything was the interest of their donors as he conceived it. And the thing is, Ron Johnson's more focused on the interests of his donors than his donors are focused on the interest of their donors. His donors are having their shops burned to the ground. And he's thinking about saving them money on their taxes, you know, over the next 15 or 20 years, because God forbid you should add an extra $600 million to the deficit because Columbus Day is a holiday. It's just a pathetic, it's a pathetic sight. It's one of those things where you look at a party, you, know, you talk about the Republican Party as being like a three-legged stool, the social conservatives with the economic conservatives and the national security conservatives. And you can see it at the establishment level becoming more of a two-legged stool, you know, saving the maximum amount of money for the business lobbies and invading Iran. Those are the two things the establishment Republican Party cares about, fiscal responsibility, growth, and the other one is peace through strength. And the way we express peace through strength is by threatening and demanding and hoping that we can get away with an invasion of Iran. And it's one of those things where if you look why Donald Trump has any appeal at all, it's because this is the alternative. You have an omni-shambles, you have riots, you have protests, and you have Ron Johnson saying, oh, I have an idea. Let's get rid of Columbus Day as a holiday. That's the answer. How's that an answer to anything, Ron? Well, it saves the federal government money. And it's one of those things where you just want to put your head through a wall. Yeah, there's something insane about these people. They're straight out of caricature where the country is burning down and people are making these kinds of talking point remarks. We'll have a woke revolution so long as it's revenue neutral. 
with these people indeed you wonder like yeah that's why we have trump and that's why we don't have an alternative to trump which in a sense is even worse we have gone through four years of american politics and republican politics especially changing because of what trump did run for office that is to say not that he's had that much success or that there weren't big social changes in america underway but they're all focused around him as you say and he still has the power to suck the air out of a room but things have not changed if anything people are more the way they were before if anything people are not reacting to this changing by figuring out okay how should we change what is it that we're looking to get because it seems good and what is it that we're looking to avoid because it seems bad instead you have people indeed turning to increasingly insane versions of ideas that were popular in the previous generation it's some kind of reversion these people are enacting a kind of nostalgia that looks like principle simply because they don't want to deal with the reality. There's riots in the streets, people's livelihoods are being destroyed, and you've got increasingly elite liberals saying that George Washington is the devil, essentially. And Republicans react to that with revenue-neutral measures, as though they would be for riots if they would be carbon-neutral, climate change riots if possible, something like that. The insanity of the Republican Party manifests primarily as cowardice, but it also has this other strange tinge that ideology has replaced reality, as though Republicans hadn't committed suicide on fiscal restraint by the 2008 crisis. They left the country with this massive debt and an economy that simply was from that point up to whatever it is the Democrats were going to do. On Obama's watch, the national debt doubled because Republicans completely committed suicide on both foreign policy credibility after winning the Cold War and on economic credibility after saving America from the catastrophe of the 70s during the Reagan years. Everything that the party had going for itself, both on the economic and on the national security side, they have not only torched, but they're acting like it's some kind of prize victory. We have seen Republican elites in national security pretend that they're somehow superior to the populist and sometimes mad things that Trump is saying, even though Trump has not encouraged America to go around murdering millions of people, if possible, and destroying vast country after country. And yet the people who sound serious, who have the gravitas, are supposedly the same ones. But they're not, and nobody believes in this stuff anymore, which is why there's no going back to 2002. There's no going back to the good old Bush days. We had another one of these caricature moments. It's just shocking. You have Black Lives Matter riots, and former President Bush goes out of his way to make a statement about the problems of systemic racism. He's not talking about the Democrat electorate. He's accusing his own electorate of being racist. As though these people voted for him and men and women went and died because of his goddamn weird ideas about Middle Eastern regime change. And now he goes around and calls them racist. This is your electorate, asshole. How could you be so shameless? Even if you thought that, oh my god, all my political career, all these people were actually systemically racist. Just shut up. If you don't have the honor to, you know, some kind of Roman gesture of committing suicide, at least shut up. And, and of course, you know, Bush, who also famously said in an elite gathering that the only thing he really regrets is not passing illegal amnesty. We have also Mitt Romney saying that Black Lives Matter. Again, you asked for the votes of the Republican electorate. How can you betray these people who voted for you, who believed in you? Social conservatives and the, the Republican electorate never really asked for Mitt Romney. He was not their dream. But they stood behind him. He ran on the Republican ticket and now he turns around and calls them racists.
there is something at the elite level that even at the moral level is insane. And if you end up in a situation where in 2020, you've got the presidents and contenders of the Republican Party over the last 20 years, minus Trump, betraying their electorate, essentially, what is the alternative? And of course, except for Romney and Bush, the other guy in between was McCain, who was famously a big, big proponent of illegal amnesty. He was the McCain of the McCain-Kennedy bill that was supposed to impose illegal amnesty with George Bush's blessing in his second term in office, which the voters killed. And aside from that, of course, McCain is also famous for killing the repeal of Obamacare, such as it was engineered in the Trump administration. This is the elite of the Republican Party. This is where they stood the people who were at the top of the ticket for the last 20 years, and this is how they treat their electorate. There's no going back because this is really who the elites are, and this is really who their electorate is, and now they cannot but hate each other. This makes sense, and it's out in the open, but it's also dangerous for the country. It is dangerous for all of us. The shocking thing is that at some level we have to say, you know, elites know how to run institutions, elites know how to deal with the problems we're facing. They're going to take care of the stuff in the country, while the rest of us, like, we've got to get on with everyday life. We do not have their privileges and therefore do not have their responsibilities. But instead, it seems like the rest of us are stuck doing the desperate things we can do, as the Republican electorate did by standing by Trump. And on the other hand, the elites are the ones doing insane things. Well, you can look at the Republican elites and you can look at like Romney and you can look at Bush. You know, to be fair, I think that police reform could potentially be a valuable cause. In other words, that there are a lot of times where institutionally speaking, police officers who are bad at their jobs abuse people and get away with it. And other police officers are unfortunately put in a position where they have to cover for them or they lose their own careers. And district attorneys are often put in a position where they have to cover for police officers or alienate the entire police force and never be able to make a case again because police officers will sandbag you going down the line. So institutional reforms, I think, would be valuable in that sense. Though, unfortunately, the conversation hasn't really been focusing a lot on those. Like, I think the creation of a special corps of prosecutors whose whole job would be to investigate accusations against the police force would be a valuable institutional reform. But it's not utopian and it won't solve every problem. So, you know, we don't necessarily talk about that. You know, it's much easier to talk about some voice actor on Bob's Burgers. You know, we don't want a white guy voicing a black guy as if that's actually going to save anybody's life or make anybody's life better, as opposed to simply it being an expression of entertainment institutions dysfunctionality. If that's how you're trying to make things better, you don't actually know how to make things better. And you don't really even care about how to make things better. You're just trying to posture because that is the closest thing you can do to actually being some, doing something useful or seeming to do something useful. It's a narcissistic gesture. But where you are right is you do have a situation where a majority of the party's political leaders hate the majority of the party's voters, and they know it. Now, Tucker Carlson is a must-watch on a sociological level. I'm not a big fan of Tucker Carlson, the person. I'm not a big fan of a lot of what Tucker Carlson says. His flumerism on the coronavirus is terrible. But one of the reasons why Tucker Carlson is a must-watch at this point We'll see how long it lasts. But the reason he's a must watch at this point is he understands the futility of the Republican leadership and he understands the desire of a large segment of Republican voters for governance so that institutions will actually function better so that, you know, there is not a license for public destruction if you're a member of one faction so that public schools are not used as a forum for anti-American propaganda. These are problems of governance. 
And he recognizes that the Republican Party does not care about governance except to the degree that it involves cutting taxes and regulations for their donors. He understands that for the Republican Party, anything that is not business lobby self-interest is either a distraction or currency to be traded for business lobby self-interest. And he does express that frustration, and that frustration is accurate. The sense that your political leaders only value you as a vote. You are vote fodder, and if there is ever going to be a war, they want you to be cannon fodder, and they want you to thank them for it, and they want to insult you on top of it. He does get that fracture within the party where you have a group of politicians. These politicians are not necessarily drawn from the business sector. Many of them are, but almost all of them are fostered by the business sector. And they've all incorporated the worldview of the business sector almost to the exclusion of any other understanding of the public interest. And furthermore, in their understanding, any different point of view is a mistake or is vice. If you don't share their point of view in total, that makes you bad. That makes you a problem to be managed. If you have any concern, those concerns are to be talked around, talked away, give you a pat on the head, and then go and do whatever the hell it is they were going to do anyway. But vote for us. Carlson does express and embody the frustration for that segment of the Republican electorate. And which is also one of the reasons why these frustrations tend to find their expression by pop culture figures rather than by politicians. Because once again, these are people who are not going to Chamber of Commerce luncheons to talk to Republican congressmen. So these people don't even exist in the political system except on Election Day. But pop culture figures like Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson are able to bring the concerns of these people, their frustrations, into focus. They're able to draw a big crowd, and a big crowd gets attention. Because once again, these people spend most of their time feeling alone. They know that there must be other people out there who feel the same way, but there's no institutional structure for them to cooperate. Once again, social capital has sharply decreased outside of a few sectors in America. Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson make these people feel like there's a lot of them, and there is a lot of them. And it gives these people a voice, though the voice is distorted through the particular personality of Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson, and it makes them a political force. But that's also something that's not easily replicable by a conventional Republican politician. Your average senator and your average governor can say all these same things, but they won't be heard. Because once again, who's going to publicize it? You can't go to the disaffected working class Republican meeting because there's no such meetings. It only works if you're a television figure like Donald Trump. It works if you have a TV show on Fox News. But these kinds of concerns are not easily expressed by conventional politicians because conventional politicians don't have an obvious way to speak to these voters. Yeah, we are in a situation where institutional politicians and you could say elites more broadly expect that television is just there to pacify the Republican electorate, to make them feel like they're heard, to talk back to the TV and say, yeah, Tucker, yeah, you get it, you get it, you tell them. And then, you know, just go on with life as normal, as though this is some kind of entertainment, whereas what's happening is that Tucker is telling both the nation and the politicians what the Republican electorate is about. He's not making this stuff up. It really and truly is the case that this is the Republican electorate. Whatever you may think about some of the opinions or the, you know, the fact that now our news and politics is essentially indignation, wall to wall, all day, every day. Nevertheless, this is the political reality. This is how people experience their everyday life in America since they see crisis after crisis unfolding. And somehow this reality is unacknowledged. It's supposed to be some kind of 
therapeutic session where people let it out, where they vent their spleen and then everybody's fine, as though their feelings weren't based in a reality that has to be acknowledged and politically addressed. It's as though the words can replace the reality. And that's a shocking notion. In the whole point of having a press, especially a partisan press in America, is that it's an enormous nation. Nobody can know what the hell goes on everywhere. But you can find out through various tests of popularity, what do people really think? What do they respond to? The popularity of Tucker Carlson is that. It was like the popularity of Donald Trump, evidence that the Republican electorate is deeply dissatisfied. And we're talking about millions and then tens of millions of people. Somehow our elites feel the need to ignore that. The more it's happening, the more the indignation grows, the worse our elites pretend that they are blind. There's something striking about that because Republicans have used their patriotism since Ronald Reagan's presidency to pretend that they somehow care about America, that they actually give a damn. Now you finally have a situation where on the other side of the aisle, liberals are continuously encouraging the destruction of everything from Mount Rushmore to George Washington's name and statues. I mean, I saw a crazy Democrat senator with vice presidential aspirations on CNN uh, refuse to say that actually George Washington was not a terrible person. He was not the devil. The, the CNN interviewer, crazily enough, was the one advising sanity. Hey, maybe like George Washington wasn't Confederate. Maybe we could be okay with him. And the Democratic senator was having none of that because that's what's public now. And in this situation, you'd expect at least Republican politicians to remember all those flag pins on their lapels, remember all the Patriot Act moralism of the Republican Party, remember that they sent this country to war in country after country for 20 years. Maybe they should be patriotic, maybe they should be defending the public peace and the nation's history in the moment when they are attacked in this humiliating, violent way in the streets with impunity, but they're all ducking for cover. It's astonishing just how cowardly the people who are pretending to be serious, senatorial, presidential, you know, politically viable, actually and truly are. Well, it's tough for the Republicans to find a voice because, one, Donald Trump gave that speech in Tulsa. And what's interesting is that, in his mind, the worst thing that's happened to America in the last six months is the television coverage of his West Point speech. He seemed weak and he was really bothered by that. But the, the pandemic didn't bother him as much. 120,000 dead didn't bother him that much. The riots didn't bother him that much. The coverage of his West Point speech bothered him. I mean, Donald Trump occasionally says, hey, George Washington's good, not a Confederate. And, of course, media lies about it. But his message would break through, except that he is too caught up in his own fantasies and he's too caught up in his emotional reactions to things in order to drive a message home. And also, you know, the majority of the Republican Party would gladly change the name of the country to the United Suck of Racism if they could get a 1% cut in the top marginal income tax rate as a result. They are literally just that contemptible. All the stuff they talk about, you know, patriotism, they would sell out the country for a tiny, tiny cut in high earner taxes because high earner taxes are real. You know, statues are fake. The name of the country is fake. Patriotism, you have to trade certain things in order to get what you need. And that really is their priority at that point. That's how we know we're out of luck. We have a president who's a complete sociopath, whose understanding of right and wrong, simply, it's external. He doesn't have a sense of right and wrong. He only has a sense of what people respond to as right or wrong. And his sense of what people think is right or wrong is decaying on a daily basis. He is losing touch with public opinion more and more, has been since February. But on the other hand, you have a political establishment that is triaging its priorities. As things get worse, throwing more and more of the party's agenda overboard in order to salvage what is most important. 
And it turns out that what's most important for them is not spending an extra five bucks on aid during the pandemic. What turns out is most important to them is not spending an extra 600 million bucks, allegedly, for a federal holiday for Columbus Day. What's most important for them is basically the money for their donors. It's a disgusting spectacle where you have a president who is theoretically a strong government guy, but he's actually feeble and he's impotent. You know, there's riots and his idea of being a strong president is to go on Twitter and in all caps, you know, tweet law and order. It's a pathetic sight. He can't actually imagine governing responsibility because he can't imagine holding himself responsible for anything. And by the way, he's a TV star. It's the president's show. If he needs to actually do the things that are involved in using government, which means bringing people together, formulating plans, strategies, and this governing is hard work, especially during a crisis. He doesn't want to do that work. He wants to tweet law and order because that's this week's episode of the Trump show. And then you have a Republican Party establishment that don't even believe in governing, except to the extent governing means cutting taxes and preventing tax increases on their donors. So, yeah, Tucker Carlson gets that frustration where he wants riots to stop. He wants school curriculums to be different and better by his lights. And the Republican parties that came in, there's not a problem. The U.S. government's got two jobs, cut taxes and invade Iran. And that's it. Limited government. The founders were terrible Confederate people, and we should get rid of them. But they wrote a limited government, and there's only two things the U.S. government can do. Cut taxes and occupy Middle Eastern countries. And, I mean, that's originalism. That's why we put these people on the Supreme Court. And, yeah, Carlson is contemptuous of them. And why shouldn't he be contemptuous of them? Yeah, we are in this strange situation, as you say. The Republican establishment antedates Trump, and actually most of these people believe that they will outlast him. But even as they hold him in contempt, they also look to him, not just for leadership, but to take all the flack as well. In a way, from the Republican point of view, the more Trump behaves abominably or just fails to do any of the things that law and order actually require, the better, because he takes all the blame and they think this means they will get away scot-free, as though they somehow have run of the votes and the party has made its peace with losing in 2020. They don't really want to run for office. They don't really want to defend their record. They don't really want to say, well, you know, like we are the party of law and order. Maybe we screwed up for 40 years. But on the other hand, we had a great economy up until this global catastrophe. And the other party is openly asking for, you know, the destruction of the nation's history and apologizing for mobs that are murdering cops in the streets. So I think maybe you should vote Republican after all. This apparently is too much for both Trump to use as a campaign platform and for the Republican Party that hopes to outlast him. It is astonishing the extent to which people think that if they just close their eyes real hard, they can wish back the normal times when leadership meant nothing but temporizing. Wait it out. Give the media cycle time to cool down. Let another crazy thing come up and people will be distracted by the next TV show and that'll be that as though we do not have all these accumulating dramas that that's about to cripple the nation, an economy that, you know, it, it rebounded wonderfully in a way, but on the other hand, uh, it seems like we're heading for another bout of catastrophe with this whole goddamn epidemic. And somehow, at the same time as people are pretending that the real world is not real, those fantasies from the good old days are what's real, just hold on to them, wait it out, it gets better. They're also strangely, as elites in every quarter, so far as I can see, they are strangely indebted to the ongoing catastrophe because it spares them the problem of actually thinking about what to do. Well, this is a crisis. I mean, what do you do in the crisis? You can't formulate policy. You can't try to keep the country together and get people going in the right way so that we save what lives we can, we deal with the disease, and we figure out some way to restart the economy before we have the kind of horrifying crash that we get a lot more people suffering. 
and cometh the hour cometh the man well the hour cometh and there is no man all the boasting about economic competence about patriotism about everything that was supposed to make the republican party unlike the democrat party now looks incredibly hollow these people will not stand for anything as you say they are interlopers in washington it's not up to them to run the institutions the institutions were all made by liberal democrats it's the new deal state the great society state the obamacare state all the administrative state that liberals own essentially and so like it's up to them to deal with it and of course coast to coast elite political communications are also liberal owned so republicans don't actually need to do anything they are just interlopers and about to get voted out of office it is astonishing how irresponsible the bad times have made people and it suggests that in a way maybe the democrats are in charge of the country they do indeed get to tell the nation what is happening and they can just lie point blank about what trump says in a speech although like anybody can listen to that speech it was i think pretty popular speech at mount rushmore and the democracy dies in darkness uh, washington post is just lying straight up it's astonishing how irresponsible these people are too but they feel like they're winning i mean they get what they want they can have lockdown today riots tomorrow and blaming trump the day after that and the day before and it all works out because they too seem to be living in a different fantasy land of the elites as callous as republicans are about making sure that you know rich people don't have to sweat so also democrats seem to think that so long as harvard gets to you know furlough the staff working custodial jobs or dining hall jobs and on the other hand you know just charge people the same thing for online streaming then that's fine as though everybody in this country was going to you know get that sort of deal get that sort of treatment what happens to all this country where people have lost jobs and are beginning to lose hope that there's a kind of a, you know a future where they'll be able to deal with their debts with their payments with the stuff hanging over their heads indeed crashing around them apparently nobody in elite institutions feels the need to do anything about all this well on both the center left as represented by Biden and both on the far left you at least have people who are interested in governing in doing stuff and when it comes to domestic politics, you have one party that believes in governing and you have another party that doesn't. In fact, you can find, you know, Republican intellectuals who will argue that governing is somebody else's problem, that governing is fascism, that governing is wrong. So the federal government is funding public colleges that are basically partisan institutions. Well, what do you want us to do about that? They'll give you the eyewash. They'll say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I know it's wrong that all this government money is going to these colleges and these colleges are partisan institutions. But what are you going to do? You can't change how these schools are operated. It's just too hard. It's too complicated. There's too many details. However, these same people do believe that you can impose a democracy on Iran. Keep in mind that this is the underlying insanity of the people that we are talking about. You know, their perspectives are so distorted and they're so used to being in their particular grooves. You know, they have a certain way of thinking and they would throw the earth into the sun rather than have an original thought. They would change the name of America to the United Suck of Racism rather than rethink any of their preferences, rather than change one comma of the 2004 Republican platform that Bush ran on. The thing is, they tolerate Trump because, you know, without him, none of these guys would have phony baloney jobs. And to be fair, some of these people are going to lose their jobs because of Trump. Once again, you said that they prefer not to comment on stuff, to hide, to let Trump take the heat. But the way I read the polls, what happens is if you're a voter and you hate Trump, you're not going to vote for some Republican senator. Every single voter that Trump alienates is going to vote Democrat down the line. Not every voter that Trump attracts is going to vote Republican down the line. So that's why in most competitive states, Trump is losing those states, but he's running ahead of the Republican candidate. 
even on trying to let Trump take the heat, he's actually burning them. He's a conductor. The heat that he's drawing is actually being sucked into the Republican candidate. It's burning them. They don't know what to do about it. Part of the problem is that most of them don't have actually anything more popular or interesting to say that Trump does. Trump was pretty well optimized, it turned out, for the political world of 2016 through 2019. He was able to manage that world. He does not understand this world at all, which is why a lot of what he keeps saying is nonsense, why he keeps alienating populations that voted for him in the past. But most Republican politicians don't have a much better point of view. They're not more popular. So they're kind of stuck with him until one, he's gone, and two, until they can figure out something to say to America that America wants to hear. They don't have that now. The thing is, the Republican establishment acts more like a lobbying group within a larger coalition than it does like a political party, which is a coalition. That's odd. You have a political party that acts like the National Association of Manufacturers. Now, the National Association of Manufacturers is a perfectly legitimate interest, as they all are pretty much. But no one would confuse it for a political party. It cannot substitute for a political party. And you have a political establishment that says, well, maybe we can. And it's crippling our politics. A Republican establishment that cannot speak to the country. They can't even speak to half of the country. That only speaks to right-leaning business. And not just business, just right-leaning business. Is a catastrophe when there's an omni-shambles because these people can't govern. They can't even imagine governing. Yeah, it's strange that things are getting increasingly more narrow-minded. Fewer and fewer people and groups and interests seem to be politically represented. You're right that interests are fine. Of course, there's business in America. Of course, you need a lot of people to come up with a coalition. And so long as they broadly agree, you can manage it from there. But there are fewer and fewer of these things actually politically represented, as you say. And somehow, instead of the party speaking up for the whole, that's made of so many different and somewhat moving parts, the party is now actually one of a bunch of parts that doesn't really understand where it stands to the other ones. We are finally in a situation where the top of the political pyramid isn't really in charge of the whole of the pyramid, it's just on top. And that's bound to create crazy stuff. Nobody wants to become senator or governor or what have you if he doesn't think it's a great thing to do. But when it turns out to be hard and predictable and that there are maybe millions of people who hate your guts, all of a sudden, you know, it gets really, really difficult to wake up in the morning and face the events. It seems like most of the people who signed up for leadership, because it's like in the leadership courses, you want to be a leader, they don't really understand that being on top without being in charge is suicidal. First of all, there's no place to go but down. And second of all, you're a natural magnet for hatred, envy, and blame. And since all of these people applied for authoritative position number, whatever the one is they got, they all deserve the blame. You cannot want people to delegate their power to you. You cannot want to represent people in office without incurring praise or blame, depending on how things go. You can either do the best that you can or just be a sitting target. We now have a sitting target party and, of course, another party that's continuously taking pot shots at it in whatever ways, legal or illegal, it's possible, including, indeed, by fomenting riots. The worse they get, the more murder, the more destruction in the streets. People's lives are ruined. Whatever house they had or real business or something, the better it is for the liberal alternative to Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Part of the problem is simply is that when you're the party in power and the person in charge does not want to lead, it's not clear what the party can do. I mean, they're going to fight over the table scraps. They're going to defend you or they're going to take pot shots at you in order to distinguish themselves. But if you're a Republican, you can't think five minutes ahead. 
because the guy in charge can't think five minutes ahead. And it's tough even to defend one thing Donald Trump says because he might change. He might choose to retroactively reinterpret what he said. So now it means the opposite of what he originally said, and now you're hanging out to dry. So on that level, their confusion is is understandable. Because once again, Republican governors, I mean, not all of them, but some of them have managed to do a decent job. And they've managed to keep things together. Now, I wouldn't exactly call them gutsy, and I wouldn't call what they have to be a comprehensive governing agenda that's appropriate to the moment. But they've done much better than the Washington Republicans. However, it's tough to create an alternative because there is no obvious alternative waiting in public opinion. In other words, you don't have the situation where you have bad Republican establishment ideas, but the public has good ideas. That's not how it works. So for one thing, it's not the job of the public to have a comprehensive governing agenda. It's somebody else's job to create it and then sell it to the public, explain it to the public, learn from the public. But it's not the job of some guy watching Fox News to have a seven-point plan about how to deal with school curriculums, about how to deal with the coronavirus, about how to deal with taxation, about how to deal with family policy. Not his job. So you have a disjunction between a party without an agenda and an electorate that doesn't have one either. But somehow we expect the electorate to produce an agenda. This sense of drift within the party also tends to derange the voters, the public, rather than make them more responsible because everything is unanchored. And you see this with the coronavirus where, I mean, there's a lot of bad ideas that have happened with the coronavirus. But one of the worst is you have this self-destructive and self-defeating discourse within the right, not necessarily the business right, but the populist right, the social media right, the talk radio right. You have a lot of people on the right who seem to be rooting for the coronavirus, just supporting policies about opening up, opposing masking, ankle-biting every mitigation step bitterly, denying how deadly the virus is, seizing on every scrap of information and torturing it and distorting it to make the virus look as safe as possible. And it's really an odd development where you have a significant segment of the right populace basically arguing for death and just bitterly opposing anything involved in saving lives, mocking it to the point where, you know, if something mitigates it, oh, you're afraid of a respiratory virus. Oh, it's just the flu. And taking every step to mitigate it as being like actual fascism. It's a bizarre and it's an odd development that I think requires a little bit of explanation. You can say to yourself, people on the right don't like being told what to do. Not exactly true. I mean, the people on the right are also the law and order people. So this tension is always there. And you can always flip back and forth between don't tread on me and law and order, depending on whether you agree with the law or whether you want to obey the order. However, what I think is going on is a little more particular in this situation. In other words, when it comes to mitigating the virus, there was always going to be a segment of the right wing that was always going to oppose everything. Now, these are the anti-vax moms who don't actually believe in germs. And it's also the guy who still has four Ron Paul stickers on the bumper of his car. They were always going to oppose everything. But that's not most conservatives. I mean, a lot of conservatives, especially when they're told by people they trust, they believe in rules, they believe in order, they believe in law. So what I think happened here... What I think mainstreamed it was an interaction between Donald Trump and talk radio, where what happened is Trump's a comment. And whenever you bring up a problem that he doesn't want to deal with, Trump is always going to say the exact same thing. It's going to be fine. It's no big deal. I'm taking care of it. So when they asked him about the virus, that's what he said. It's fine. It's no big deal. I'm taking care of it. There's only 14 cases. It'll soon be zero. And when they asked them, you know, is it a problem? They said, no, the reaction to the virus is a media hoax. A very important word here. It's a hoax. 
But what he's doing is he's playing it down. And when they asked him later, he said, why did you say that? He said, it's my job to be a cheerleader. I mean, he, he said, my job is to make people feel good. He's a con artist. He would have been much better off being straight with people. And he would have been much better off telling people to take mitigation steps. But that's not who he is. He was actually being kind of honest that he lied to people in order to make them feel good. So that's what you have right here. You have a president saying it's not a big deal, but he's saying it in a very equivocal way. He said it's going to be zero soon. Now, soon can mean anything. It can mean a year. It can mean 10 years. It can mean six months. He gave himself outs. When he talked about the hoax, he didn't refer to the virus as a hoax. He referred to the media reaction as a hoax. That can be interpreted any number of ways. But on the other hand, you have conservative talk radio. And conservative talk radio has two incentives. Incentive number one is partisan, us versus them. And your job is to be us. The second incentive, you need a strong take. You're better off having a clear, strong, polarizing take than having a boring take that is right. You're better off being wrong with a strong take than being right with a boring take. So between those two incentives, when you have Donald Trump saying it's going to be down to zero soon and the media reaction is a host, when you put that through the talk radio machine, what you get is the virus is a hoax. What you get is Rush Limbaugh saying it's just a cold. I mean, Limbaugh disgraced himself. That's basically what happened. They, they thought they were defending Donald Trump. But this is like a pebble that starts an avalanche. Now, you can blame the original pebble, but after a while, stopping that pebble isn't going to stop the avalanche. And what happened is dozens of radio hosts all over the country told their listeners, it's not a big deal. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It's all a media hoax. Listeners went on Facebook. They talked to their friends and they said the same thing. It's just cold. It's just a hoax. It's just the media trying to control you, the media trying to take down Donald Trump. Don't worry about it. These talk show hosts and these talk radio listeners, we're talking millions of Americans here, they created a personal investment in florism. They stuck their own necks out. And right now, going back on it would cause them to lose face. So what, what happens after that is they don't want to admit they're wrong. Even after Donald Trump says, it's not the flu, this is vicious, it's terrible. So what they do is they ignore it. And when Donald Trump says, yeah, but we don't shut down the country for the flu, they say, aha. But keep in mind, this started as defending Donald Trump. It's no longer about defending Donald Trump. It's about saving face for themselves. It's about not facing their friends or going on Facebook and saying, yeah, I was wrong. So this expresses itself through a constant stream of ankle biting and whining and, oh, we don't shut the country down and litigating whether the virus kills 0.8% of those infected or whether it kills 0.5% of the people infected. And talking about, you know, masks or the new slave chains, you know, it's stuff like that. But the underlying reason for all this ankle biting, all this whining, all this lying to themselves, lying to everybody else is because they stuck their necks out early to defend Donald Trump even beyond Donald Trump's willingness to defend Donald Trump. And now they just can't admit they're wrong. And they'll say anything in order to make it right. That's why you see on right social media, they'll talk about Sweden. We should be like Sweden. I mean, Sweden is one of the few countries in the world who has performed worse than the United States at saving lives. I mean, Sweden's death rate is one third higher than the United States. It's spectacular. Right across the street, you have Denmark, a comparable country. Denmark's death rate is one-sixth that of Sweden. And yet you'll still have people on right social media arguing that, you know, we should do the Sweden thing. Now, they're not doing it, you know, if, if we had Sweden's death rate, instead of having 120,000, we'd probably have like 160,000. Now, Americans would not be happy with another 40,000 American dead. And by the way, Sweden has huge demographic advantages over the United States. I mean, Sweden has far less obesity, less diabetes. Old people in Sweden are much more likely to live in single-person dwellings, which means they're less likely to be infected. If you had countries that were similarly effective in preventing infection, you would expect us to have a much higher death rate than Sweden. No, the fact that our death rate is one-third higher 
basically means we're twice as good at it. If we had their policies, our death rate would be probably more like Massachusetts. It'd probably be more like 250,000 right now rather than 130,000. But that's what they got. I mean, they were opposed to lockdowns. They were opposed to social distancing. They're opposed to masks or if they're supportive of masks, they're late converts. And once again, at this point, it's not about being right. It's about not admitting that you're wrong. And this creates this toxic atmosphere in center-right politics, where you have a significant fraction of the base that is actually practicing a kind of narcissistic politics, which is just about refusing to admit error, when deep down they know they're wrong. They can look at Sweden and they can look in Denmark and see who handled it different, who handled it better. This is all motivated reasoning. And at the same time, you have a much quieter but also large fraction of the Republican base who don't want to die. They don't value Trump's ego in the ego of their fellow Republican voters enough to expose themselves to risks. So what you get is a situation where, you know, you have MAGA Twitter saying everything's fine. And then you have the Tulsa rally where only 6,000 people show up because there's a lot of Republicans who are quietly like, I don't like this. You know, there's supposed to be a rally in New Hampshire today. Now, allegedly, Donald Trump canceled the rally because there's going to be a tropical storm. Looking out my window right now, I'm in the same climate zone as where that rally was supposed to be. It's 85 degrees and it's hot. There's a slight possibility of showers. The tropical storm missed. What happened was they got feedback that they were not going to get a lot of people. So this was a face-saving excuse for canceling the rally. There's a lot of people on the right who have not bought into this narrative that it's all a flu. It's all overreaction. Get on with your lives. However, a lot of them have bought into it, and it's created this quiet civil war on the right where you have people who are constantly fighting February's war, explaining how it's all a big hoax and how Donald Trump is being lied about by the media. And you have another much quieter group who are withdrawing, who are not going to take these risks. And some of these people are going to vote for Joe Biden because Joe Biden never gave the sense that he was willing to sacrifice them in order to make a point. That's one of the toxic divisions on the right. As much as anything else, that's what's going to cause a broad Republican defeat in 2020. Pete, I agree in part, but I dissent in part. You know, I can see why people on the Republican side have been so against so many of the measures of dealing with this crisis. And I can put that in practical ways that I think anybody can check in five minutes on Google. One of them is that it seems like a small number of liberal Democrat states have incurred a vast destruction. And most of the country, in fact, has not. And many, many Republican states have been doing very, very well, including states where the media threatened apocalypse, like in Florida, which actually did superbly compared to liberal states that the media loves, like New York. So in two senses, you already see that Republicans live in another world. They have not been hit in the way in which dense blue America has been hit. And at the same time, they were threatened with Armageddon for disobeying the liberal media, and it turned out not to happen. And so they feel that they have to defend themselves and also that they are right, that they have not been involved in catastrophe. Nobody's grandma and grandpa had to die in Florida because it's Republican. Now look at New York and New Jersey, vast death. That brings me to point number three. In Of the horrible death toll, the hecatomb in America, something like 40%, maybe you know better than me, were in hospice care. These were not people dying in the general population. These were the only people that you could actually hope to isolate. And in fact, in state after state, especially in liberal states, but also in Ohio, it was the decision by super serious face the disease people to put sick people into hospice care that led to the hecatombs. So how are you going to trust health authorities and political authorities when they behave this way? Leaving aside, how are you going to trust the media when they're constantly lying? Of course, it was inevitable that people on the Republican side were going to look around their world and say, actually, this is not hell on earth for us. 
Actually, I'm terrified of how quickly the country is changing around me. Actually, I would like some political leadership, but in absence of that, we're not going to obey what liberal elites are going to tell us to do. It is a very partisan point, but I believe that are all these real things there to point at. Isn't it the case that Republican states had done very well? To a large extent, I would suggest, just because, you know, their circumstances were better. Most of America is not dense in the way in which New York City and New Jersey are. Most of the country was not exposed in the same way. It's also true that, you know, just look at California. There are very dense places in California, and they were not hit. I don't know why is everybody dying in New York, but San Francisco and LA have been spared. Thank God California has been spared. But I can't explain why, and nobody can explain why, and nobody should pretend that they know better, and the population simply isn't buying whatever it is that politicians or the press are selling. I agree with you that there's a lot of political theater around what is the disease, is it good, is it bad, what are you going to do about it? And that's dangerous. But I think there are a lot of realities that we also have to acknowledge because that's the world in which most people really and truly live. I agree with you that there's something catastrophic in a Republican Party that doesn't take seriously the fact that you have to protect seniors and families and that, you know, we just have to a significant extent a failure of governing, both at the federal level and at the state level. But I completely understand why people think that they should not, in fact, obey a national media and health authorities who are lying to them for months, who downplayed things, who downplayed safety measures, and whose constant ideas and models were proved to be insanities and in a certain way simply, you know, power grabs. I don't mean that it's a power grab because these liberals are evil people who want to tyrannize us. I don't have totalitarian fantasies. What I mean is, like, if you ask national authorities, what is the plan going forward? All the expertise of the administrative state and all the super brainy people with their institutes in academia that are supposed to come up with modeling and some kind of policy ideas. What is public policy on coronavirus going to be? Well, we don't have good answers to that, do we? What is it that people could be persuaded of, say, look, it's going to be a rough summer, but we've got some serious ideas we're implementing and some real evidence. We're going to level with you this time. Sure, we lied to you over the spring, but like, I mean, that was different. Like that was the mayor of New York telling people to go out on the town in the first or second week of March. That is invitation to death in a way in which like Trump was not involved in that. One thing I would point out is that Trump's on policy level, especially in the spring, it wasn't that terrible compared to, say, the UK, compared to, say, New York. But at the same time, the level of rhetoric matters, too. By the early part of March, talk radio had largely taken the stance that it was no big deal. And millions of other people who listened to talk radio had taken that stance. That was an intellectual exercise. Imagine if, in February, Trump had sounded not like Trump, but like Benjamin Netanyahu. What if he had said this is a national emergency? It's really important. I'm closing the borders completely. And wear this beautiful Make America Great Again mask when you go out. Now, this would actually produce a different polarization in our politics, where every Democratic office holder in the country is giving him a middle finger, while talk radio listeners are saying it's a national emergency, we need to stop this. But in some ways, it's a more healthy politics. Whereas the populist Republican critique of the coronavirus is the coronavirus is no big deal, and that Cuomo and de Blasio are mass murderers. You've got to pick one. Either it's a serious problem that if you don't handle it well, kills a lot of people, or it's not a serious problem and we should go on with our lives. One or the other. Now you can say, well, lock down the nursing homes. Well, even if you lock down the nursing homes, if there's a lot of community spread, a lot of people will get it and a lot of people will die from it. This is especially true in March. Now treatment protocols have improved. If you get the coronavirus now and the hospitals are not overcrowded now and they remdesivir now, you're much less likely to die, but all the things being equal in July than you were in March.
Now, at the moment, Texas and Florida are having flare-ups. Arizona's having a bad flare-up. Democratic-governed California is having a flare-up. Now, it's unlikely that these flare-ups will get to be as bad as New York for multiple reasons. One is that these cities aren't as dense. These cities don't use public transportation as much. And people who do use public transportation are much more likely to use masks. I mean, that was another thing that was going on in New York. You had the subway at the same time that the public health authorities were telling you not to use masks. That was a major factor. So once again, it looks bad now. It's probably going to get worse, but it'll probably never get to be anywhere near as bad as New York was in the spring because we just know more. As screwed up as our politics are, we should be able to do a little better. However, that does get the next thing we're talking about, which is just the corruption of the public health authorities. It bothers me a lot because the public health authorities are extremely important. If the public health authorities are either not telling you the truth or they are telling you the truth and they're not believed, a lot of people die. A lot of people die. So their credibility is extremely important. And the destruction of their credibility over the last six months is a tragedy that's going to reverberate for years decades. I mean, there are millions of people in the future who, when the public health authorities tell them something, are going to remember that they will lie to. That is not going to go away. Now, the thing is, there'll be reporters who are like, how dare you not believe them? And people are going to be like, I remember being lied to. And the thing is, the reporter's attitude is going to be like, well, you should believe them anyway. That's just not how it works. You can't lie to someone on Monday and demand that they believe you on Tuesday. And part of what's happened with the public health authorities is two trends interacting. Now, the first trend, there was a pre-existing culture of lying among public health authorities that long predated the coronavirus. Because I remember in the 1990s, the public health authorities saying that anabolic steroids don't really add muscle. They mostly add water to your body weight. They don't mostly add muscle. Now, there is a sense in which that's true. Muscle cells are 60 percent water. So you could have added 50 pounds of muscle and they would still technically be right that you mostly added water. But what they're doing is they're lying to you. They're willfully misleading you. Their attitude is, since we know you're not going to do what we need you to do if we tell you the truth, we are going to tell you what you need to hear in order to do what we want you to do. The problem is they're not that good at lying. So that what happens is when they lie, your target audience recognizes that they're lying. Like when they told bodybuilders and professional athletes that steroids don't add muscle, but they didn't go, okay, sure, now I'm going to be clean. They didn't use steroids any less. They just listened to the public health authorities less. Because if they lie to you about something you know about, why would you trust them on something that you don't know about? Since you know they lied in the area where you have personal expertise. And you saw the same thing with masks. It wasn't like they didn't know that masks helped. They wanted masks to go to higher order uses. So what they did was they lied to the public about the efficacy of masks. And they're unapologetic about it, rather. I like Fauci. I think Fauci has been better than most over the last six months. Better than the president, better than most of the politicians, better than most public health authorities. But when he went to Congress and they asked him, you know, why did you lie about it? He didn't say I didn't lie. And he didn't say I was right. If you were to translate what Anthony Fauci said to Congress about why he lied about masks, it would be because you can't handle the truth. You sit there and you tell me to tell the truth, but the truth is going to get people killed. So you want me lying. You need me lying in order to get the people to do what I need the people to do in order to prevent them from lying. He's Colonel Jessup, only he's Anthony Fauci. I mean, I was watching it. And the thing is, it was one of those things where he had the same defiance. Of course I lied. Of course I deceived. But this is not an idealistic world. I mean, the thing is, I'm trying to solve diseases while you have softball games. And it's literally this, you know, a few good men moment. And that's one thing you have going on. It's an unapologetic culture of lying, which is bad enough. Because once again, everybody who remembers what was said in March about masks, you know, I, I use masks. I wanted to use masks. And the reason why was because I didn't trust the public health authorities. And I looked at what Japan was doing. And Japan knows how to deal with these things. I had no problem dealing with the public health authorities as people who would lie to me. 
Another thing that's happening is just the general corruption of white-collar institutions, the belief that partisan political goals are ultimately more important than the narrow organizational goals, that they override those goals. So you have public health authorities basically saying, if you want to go to a BLM protest, go ahead. That's fine. I mean, wear a mask. Sure, but go ahead. But the rest of you, if you're not going to BLM protest, you should stay in your house because it's super important to prevent the spread. I think it was Adam Elkis, who might have met somebody else on Twitter, who basically said, these kinds of measures only work if people who disagree with each other agree to cooperate. Republicans and Democrats agree to cooperate. Atheists, Jews, Christians, and Muslims agree to cooperate. You share the sacrifice. If you create a situation where you tell liberals, go out there and protest, and tell conservatives, stay home and don't protest, Conservatives aren't going to be like, I'm not going to go protest. What they're going to do is they're just not going to listen to you anymore. You destroy your credibility completely with this population. And it's not clear to me whether the people who are doing this recognized the costs that they were imposing on their own authority. In order to make these partisan gestures, they had destroyed their ability to speak to people who disagree with their personal political preferences. You know, he's not a public health figure, but the Blasio, because he's so dumb, actually managed to speak with more clarity. Other people speak around the issue. But the Blasio says this is an important moment. These protests are important. I'm going to support them. What people hear is my politics is important. Your politics is not important. You're a second class citizen. Now, public meetings by people I like are good. Public meetings by people I don't like are bad. And I'm going to dispense my public health advice and law enforcement accordingly. You can't think of a better way to create bitterness in division and to kill the possibility of social cooperation than this kind of partisanship within public health authorities. It's a national disaster, and we're going to be paying for years to come. Yes, I completely agree. We are in a catastrophe that is only going to get worse. As you call it, the only shambles. But as you also say, it's also a lot of people dying. And in strange ways, there will be people dying again and again. That is indeed because the way elites treat the American population is persuasion by words, vaguely therapeutical, vaguely rhetorical. You know, the magic of persuasion is going to get this country going in the right direction. And also, when things don't work out, you know, you stamp on people. You cruelly humiliate people through the press. And if you're Bill de Blasio, you know, send out police to round up Jews. This is not something that liberals should be doing, I would think. And I would think that everybody realizes that going after Jews in Brooklyn is, that's a really bad look. Sending the police because these people are breaking social distancing rules while there are riots and BLM protests happening everywhere around them. It's crazy. It's like Democrat governors threatening churches with all sorts of reprisals. But on the other hand, riots burning down neighborhoods, eh, super fine. That's moral. Morality beats epidemiology all of a sudden. You have indeed healthcare experts taking to the press to explain that actually racism kills too. So it's sort of like a switch between the killing of racism and the killing of an epidemic. And, you know, it it works out. It's good. It's moral. And the people who disagree with this or who are on the receiving end of this are treated with cruelty. They are, as you say, treated as second class citizens, you know, bigots, racists, monsters. Indeed, maybe they deserve to die. This elite attitude, I don't think liberals are monsters. I don't think they're, you know, just trying to hurt and humiliate everybody else. I think to a large extent, they're reacting the way they do out of incompetence. They do not know how to deal with this problem. And their basic idea was that you just got to message things right. You have the press carrying water for you. So you just have to clothe yourself in authority. And it can be black today and white tomorrow and green the next. And people will, you know, just go with your matching colors. It'll be fine. 
they do not realize that words don't go that far. They don't realize, you know, one of the dangers of the system of government we have is that representation separates the people from the government. People don't know who the hell makes the decisions or why, so why should you trust them? Well, we trust each other on a partisan basis primarily because these are my guys and they're fighting off the other guys. If the guys can get along, as you say, if like, you know, all our political disagreements, but we can agree we're going to have to save the economy and the country. And first of all, people who are sick or who are at risk, then okay, we'll have some kind of grand agreement on a temporary basis. Admittedly, we can go past some of our differences. But when there is no such thing, there is no other ground of agreement. There's no reason for people to trust impersonal institutionalized authorities who share none of the risks, face none of the danger, and bully everybody else by threatening them with moral reprisals and legal reprisals. It's shocking, but that's another thing that the crisis of 2020 revealed, the extent to which elites are removed from any of the dangers, and the extent to which this only makes them crueler when imposing their decisions on the rest of the population. The truth is that on the liberal side, people are largely okay with this, on the chattering classes side, that is, because they don't really care what happens to all the poor people who are out of jobs, what happens to all the poor people whose living conditions are not like, hey, Chris Cuomo on CNN talking to his brother. Most people don't live in that kind of luxury. So what are you going to do about this? Well, I guess, you know, just like throw money at people. Somehow this is going to work out as though you can actually lock people down for months like they're animals. But no, they're people. They have people to see. They have family. They have things to be dealing with. You cannot throw away their lives and on the promise that we won't even tell you ever when anything's going to change. It'll change when we tell you it changes. And not only that, we'll make ad hoc exceptions based on our partisan preferences. That's where the bitterness really comes in. But I also think we should make distinction. I don't think most walking around liberals believe that BLM protests should be allowed and Jewish funerals should be broken up by the police. I mean, once again, what we're looking at is a subset of liberals, largely in the elites. It's grotesquely overrepresented in journalism and political elites. Their understanding of politics is, of course, we get to do what we want. We make the rules, we change the rules, we make exceptions to the rules. You have to obey the rules, even retroactively. If you violate a rule I just made yesterday, well, you're still guilty. But at the same time, we don't have to follow the rules. I mean, de Blasio is the best example of that. He banned going to the gym and immediately went to the gym. The underlying mentality is we're good people. BLM protesters are good people. Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews, going to a funeral, they are at best a distraction. In other words, their kindest understanding of it is that the funeral is a luxury that they should give up. Their less kind understanding of it is that religion is a distraction, and these Jews probably vote Republican, so screw them. You have kind of an infantile understanding of politics. You know, I punch you in the face, that's politics. You punch me in the face back, that's abuse. And that's infected the public health authorities, where basically what happened is there was that famous letter that was sent by those 1,100 people. I mean, some of them were real public health authorities, some of them were med students where they basically said that we support the BLM protests, but we also oppose protests against the stay-at-home orders. They actually use the phrase stay-at-home orders. They support the protests, but they also support stay-at-home. But the thing is, in their view, it makes sense. Rules are made to control you and to empower me. And if you don't, like I said, where they have governing authority to do what de Blasio does, they send the police to break you up, where de Blasio goes to a protest, but at the same time, he shuts down playgrounds in Jewish neighborhoods because he doesn't want Jewish kids playing on playgrounds because they might spread the virus. But at the same time, he goes to protests and kneels. Just these grotesque examples of what to normal people seem like hypocrisy, but to the de Blasio's of the world actually feel like virtue politics. Once again, their understanding of politics is authoritarian. And they're only limited by their authority. I mean, listen, de Blasio would send his political opponents to camps if he could. 
What's stopping him is that there's higher there's people that are preventing him from doing this. But he's also an extreme example of a much more common phenomenon, which is a partisan understanding of justice in law, where their partisan political goals are more important than any formal rules or any other formal commitments. And they are willing to do anything to the opposition in order to get what they want. It's bad enough when it's a women's studies professor with that attitude. But when it's a public health official, it's a disaster. Because you said, you know, why should we believe in among public health officials? There's two reasons why we should believe public health officials. One, they know more than we do. They're experts. And they're telling us the truth. That's one reason. But if they lie, that reason go away. The second reason to believe them is, in some sense, they are above politics. You expect, you know, a Democratic senator to tell you Democratic things. You expect a Republican senator to tell you Republican things. You do not expect public health officials to play those games. Their authority is to a large extent derived by their distance from partisan game playing. When they close that distance, when they take on their role of partisans, they destroy that credibility. They become just another partisan political figure. So when you have you internalize that one, these people will gladly lie to you. And two, these people are picking political signs and they want to help their side and you want to hurt your side. Their credibility is shot. And once again, it's a disaster because their job really is very important. And if they do their job badly or if they do their job well and people just don't listen, people die. And they destroy their own credibility over the last six months. Yeah, and indeed this will have consequences as the disease gets worse again in the summer and might come back in the fall. And who knows what's going to happen because there is no long-term plan. There's no medium-term plan either. We went from flatten the curve to indefinite lockdowns to whatever the hell exceptions for riots. And we do not have a new national idea. We do not have a new plan. Or even there are these people that you trust that are working on it and here's what they're up to. Not even, you know, a preview of coming attractions. What the hell? Something. We have replaced even dealing with public policy with, well, we hate these other people and we have good reasons and they hate us and they think they have good reasons. So like we'll take it from there. Our theory of causation is now strictly tit for tat, and that's not likely to work out. And we are stuck because conservatives do not believe in institutional authority in the way liberals do, to a very large extent, because liberals own it, and everybody knows it. Everybody knows that the media, that academia are very liberal, and therefore the seeding grounds and also the spreading grounds of institutional elites, that's who they are. The more and more there is contempt between the people and the elites, the more partisan spread makes some kind of national agreement very, very hard to even countenance, much less extend over a considerable period of time. And then you run into unexampled things. America has not been on lockdowns for months before. This is not something anybody is used to. And indeed, now people will have to deal with some kind of political meaning for this suffering. And that's going to make the partisanship much worse than it has been yet. Everybody's been miserable in some ways. People couldn't go see their parents die. People couldn't go see their wives give birth or all sorts of things happening. Lost jobs, lost careers. Young people who are already in a precarious way in respect to jobs are now going to deal with that. Whatever hope people had that, look, America sucks for most people, but I'm going to college, so I'm better than other people. Screw them. Even that is gone because, like, you're not going to college, kid. Trust me on this. So the future is on hold, and this must create fear, uncertainty, suffering. And our elites are not saying how they will be dealing with this, only whose fault it is. And they can't get rid of the people whose fault it is either, so we're going on with the madness too. 
This is the situation we are dealing with. 2020 is the defining year of an entire young generation. People between 15 and 35 or whatever, this will define how they understand things and it's going to be brutal. It's going to show that institutions are not to be trusted, that your life may be destroyed or you're dying, but elites do not care, and that the do not care is bipartisan. There's something American elites, liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican can agree on. They don't really give a damn about the vast majority of the population that's probably going to lead to bad things. This is the situation we are in. Instead of dealing with public policy for the summer and fall and trying to figure out how the hell we keep this crisis under control while understanding that, of course, we're going to do politics because it's an election year. Instead of dealing with what would have already been a complicated matter, we have this instead. And in a way, it's a wonder and maybe a testimony to the greatness of the American people that people have not gone more crazy than they have already. I think we would not have had so many protests and riots had young people not been on lockdown for months. It's the irresponsibility of elites who do not even understand human nature. What happens if you do this to people? Do you think you're going to get the rewards of it? And then they turned around and said, actually, you know, for morality points, we will get the rewards. Sure, we're destroying ourselves on the disease, but, you know, we're winning on morality and that counts in the election. And so, you know, more hatred is now inevitable. And I agree with you that there was and maybe there still is a kind of alternative. I don't think conservatives and Republicans care for institutional authority in the way liberals do, but they do care about patriotism in a way liberals don't. I'm not saying the liberal electorate is not patriotic. I mean that the liberal elites and their public language, as obvious over the last couple of months, is not just not patriotic. They actually hate patriotism. The elites of liberal America are not willing to draw the line at any part of the American past that they could say, but this was good and noble and we should be thankful, we should be grateful for Lincoln, we should be grateful for Washington. It's only a matter of do we just destroy them or do we also humiliate them in the process? Let's you know figure it out. And it was possible, perhaps it still is possible for people who have an ambition and think about the country's future to figure out that in between Republican patriotism and the need to figure out public policy, there may be a possibility to persuade people to go together. But I think what has also been proven over the months is that there's no super secret institutional solution. Nobody who is already famous or up top is going to come help us. New things have to be tried now. Anybody with the ambition and the opportunity you know, had better do what he can to save whatever he can. Especially when it comes to the elite liberals, what I think is going on is that, you know, obviously most Democratic senators love America. But what's going on is that a lot of very damaged people are expressing their politics through social media. They're hyperactive. And these really damaged, insane people, you see this all through cancel culture, are pushing democratic politics to the left. Because as we saw with like David Shore, that kid who was fired as a researcher for tweeting out a study that was perfectly fine that showed that riots are less good for winning elections than peaceful protests, and he was fired for it. A series of norms have developed in liberal social media spaces that privilege dishonesty, privilege lies, privilege defamation. In other words, where if you have people who are completely insane, making obviously false accusations of harm or danger, there is a presumption that these obviously false accusations of harm must be treated as true, which pushes the entire conversation to the left because you're basically giving these people a license to destroy whoever they want. So you stay out of their way. And these people have particular political demands that are relatively extreme. And once again, what I can't emphasize enough is that these people are insane. These are people who in their, you know, their Twitter biographies have something like, you know, bottom for Lenin, top for heterophallic capitalism. It just, you know, people who have severe emotional problems who are expressing their severe emotional problems through politics.
and they've been empowered. And you see this with Tammy Duckworth, who knows better, who is triangulating between the American public and these insane people. In other words, she's not wholly siding with one and she's not wholly siding with the other. She's trying not to offend either. And this does derange our politics because these crazy people are kind of college-educated crazy people. These are the people who are the less successful peers of people who did go into democratic consulting and who did get the shrinking numbers of jobs in media. These are your college friends or the friends of your college friends. And to a lot of our journalistic class and our center-left political class, these people feel more like America than America feels like America. In other words, 60% of people might agree with something, but, you know, if these lunatics disagree, these lunatics are more representative of America than that other 60%. That is pushing American politics in a more authoritarian, more ideological direction. It's a really bad development, and it's showing up across more and more elite institutions. First and foremost, a problem for Democrats, but in the short term, it isn't. The Republican Party is so fractured, so incompetent, so uninterested in governing that they can win anyway. But at the end of the day, you know, Part of the reason why you had that Harper's letter was you had a lot of people on the center left who were like, oh, my God, these people are insane. Unless they're contained, they're going to do more and more damage. But these insane people that are being referenced, you know, these are the people who are basically calling the tune at The New York Times, The Washington Post. They're basically the audience for MSNBC and they're basically the audience for CNN because most people don't watch those stations. You have these broken people influencing the relatively small number of people now who are entering journalism, who are entering the staffing cadres of the Democratic Party, and bad things are going to happen as a result. Now, one example of this institutional corruption is not so much the 1619 Project, but the reaction to the 1619 Project, where you had Nicole Hannah-Jones. Her project had a major factual error. She started with the claim that the American Revolution was fought largely to preserve slavery. That was one of the main causes, as far as she was concerned. Her own fact checker says there's no facts to support it. This is not an accurate statement. She published it anyway. Now, personally, too much criticism is directed to Nicole Hannah-Jones. People say untrue things all the time, and we don't even notice or care. I mean, the thing is, why should we focus on her? What matters is the New York Times knew it was factually false and published it anyway. What matters is the Pulitzer Committee knew that it was factually false and gave her the Pulitzer Prize anyway. What matters is the institutional corruption of these formerly powerful, powerful, respected institutions. That's the problem. But the institutions don't get the blame that they deserve because the people who are in charge of the institutions aren't very online. Like Nicole Hannah-Jones, she's a, she's a lunatic. It's the 4th of July and she's spreading conspiracy theories that people are shooting fireworks because the U.S. government wants to destabilize Black Lives Matter by shooting off fireworks. It's just complete insane. She's a crazy person. But the problem isn't her being a crazy person. I remember there's lots of crazy people in the world. They're smearing stuff on your windshield. What matters is that powerful institutions are empowering her are complicit in spreading untrue things that she says. But since the people who are in charge of these institutions aren't very online, they don't get the blame. If you're going to apportion blame between the New York Times, the Pulitzer Committee, and Nicole Hannah-Jones, you deserve 2% of the criticism. Any newspaper could find somebody to publish something untrue. They just found her. But your job is to not find that person. And if the person says something untrue, your job is to correct it. Your job is to not publish it. Your job is to not give awards to it. But they didn't because they're corrupt. And the institutional corruption is much more important than these Twitter celebrities who are empowered by this institutional corruption. Yeah, I completely agree. People who are at the core of this as celebrities, that is at the core of the big TV show we do online, the morons writing illegible books about white fragility or white racism or systemic racism or all this trash that's now dominating the bestseller list on Amazon. 
these people are just morons. They are just everyday morons who have been at it for decades. They are not the problem. They are not important. Focusing on them is nuts. The institutions that enable them are important. And saying, well, actually, that's just par for the course is terrible. Conservatives don't do enough of this blaming for two reasons. One of them is that conservatives don't want to create other media institutions. They're super successful at parasitizing the New York Times and the Washington Post, complaining about them and leaving it at that. They're not going to put money and work into persuading their audience that they can find another kind of politically opinionated, partisan, but solid form of media. And the other reason is people can't say to themselves that these institutions have moral responsibilities in our politics. They are not just private enterprises. They are not just do-your-own-thing corporations. They have a public status that forces them to be more serious or else face the public wrath. And so conservative intellectuals are uniquely incompetent in dealing with this matter. They either laugh at how stupid and bad these writers are, or they say, well, actually, you know, like corporations have their own problems, you know, start your own New York Times, start your own Facebook. Well, I mean, no, it's not up to me. It's not up to you. It's not up to everybody else. It's up to the people who are influential, successful millionaires in media, whatever. Those are the ones who should be starting a new New York Times, starting a new Facebook or something. And they won't and they don't want to. So there's not enough pushback. There's not enough of an attempt to hold people accountable for these things. The opportunities to say, do not sign up for the party of mad elites and aspiring elites who want to torch the country and its history. Sign up for the alternative because we screw up and we suck, but we are not torching the country and its history. That opportunity is there. And the number of people saying, well, I'll pick up that football and run with it is vanishingly small. It is astonishing. Hopefully, the indignation, the outrage, and the increasing distrust of institutions will have this upside. People trying to figure out something else. People get the sense that nobody's coming to save you. Your elites are not just not our betters. They're not anything, really. Well, it's time for something else. Since everybody understands that there will be an election this November, every day coming nearer, people have got to be way more serious than they have been. I don't know what shock will do it, but some shock. Well, I think that the turning of the Pulitzer Committee and the Washington Post news sections and the New York Times news sections into propaganda mills, while regrettable, these kinds of institutional changes tend to be self-correcting under normal circumstances. If the Washington Post is telling you two plus two equals five, even if you agree with the Washington Post's general perspective, you're going to seek out sources that are going to tell you two plus two equals four. The thing is, at some point, it will create an alternative market. Now, whether it gets filled or not, I'm not exactly sure. The danger is the creation of a managed democracy through a cartel between liberal news sources and the social media oligarchs. Because the social media oligarchs do create a narrow funnel where if you can get three, four, five companies on your side, you can basically cut off the opposition from political opinion. The turning of center-left media outlets that had some kind of attempt to be honest to whatever the Washington Post is now, where Donald Trump says George Washington's good, and the Washington Post writes Donald Trump said slavery's awesome. I mean, this kind of lying is bad, but it's self-correcting under normal circumstances. But what I do think the ultimate end game for this is at the beginning of the pandemic, people would disagree with who and some social media companies would take down people who disagreed with who. Now, the World Health Organization gladly lied about stuff. I mean, it passed along obviously fake Chinese evidence that there was no evidence of person to person contraction of the coronavirus. 
the who gladly lied for China multiple times. But at the same time, there were multiple points where the social media oligarchs took down information that disagreed with who. Now, it just happens that pretty much the information they took down was actually false, too. I mean, who can be lying about one thing and be telling the truth about another? But the point is that they chose who as the standard. Now, who is an obviously untrustworthy standard? But what you could imagine now is a cartel of left radicalized media companies that have a history for objectivity become the standard for what's misinformation and what isn't. In other words, that you have a Republican say two plus two is four. The Washington Post and New York Times say he actually said two plus two is five. And the social media oligarchs used it as a pretext to deplatform. You basically have a legacy media institution becoming totally okay with lying on a partisan basis. But at the same time, they still have that legacy status. They were the gold standard for reporting in the past. And the social media oligarchs are vulnerable to public pressure. And you have the toxic dynamic that you have in politics you also have within their own businesses where you uh, allow National Review to write something. And one of your staffers says, this story made me unsafe. Now, once again, they're lying, but the norms are such that you can't say, shut up, stop lying. You have to pretend that they're telling the truth, even though they know they're lying. You know they're lying. Everybody reading knows they're lying. You have to operate as if they're telling the truth. And at the same time, you have the Washington Post and the New York Times saying, well, that's misinformation. Now you have a recipe for deplatforming the opposition, where the opposition says something and you basically have a cartel of legacy media organizations and tech oligarchs deplatforming them. What David French will say is, well, it's your job as the average American to come up with both a Facebook and a New York Times. That's, that's your job. You need to get $200 billion and do that. And the thing about David French is he's not going to be deplatformed because his Twitter stick right now is calling Republicans racist. He's useful to the deplatformers. I mean, I understand why he does it. Some, you know, Trump goons said some horrible things about him and his family. He's bitter and he's more than glad to see a managed democracy in which the people who said bad things about him are screwed. But the threat of a managed democracy through the radicalization of conventional media is legitimate. And, you know, Josh Hawley is about the only one who seems to take it seriously. Now, you see Ted Cruz is a troll. Ted Cruz will go on Twitter and he'll criticize hypocrisy. But Josh Hawley is the one who goes, I'm going to pass rules and I'm going to prevent the tech oligarchy from creating a managed democracy. I mean, it's the difference between Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. I mean, Tucker Carlson will say, is the problem what we have to do to solve it? Sean Hannity's an entertainer. Sean Hannity says Democrats are bad. Vote for the regular Republicans who will do regular Republican things and never deal with these actual problems, but vote for the regular Republican. Josh Hawley says this is a real danger. We need to do something about it. And then you have the think tank Republicans, the think tank conservatives who are cashing checks from Google. They have answers. One, it's not happening. Two, okay, it is happening, but it's not that bad. Three, it is happening, and it is that bad, but screw you. I mean, we're cashing our checks. We're not being deplatformed. If you want Google to spread your ideas, have Google's ideas. That's what we do, and we make a good living at it. So you do have this situation where you have the threat of a managed democracy, and the answer is not necessarily obvious, but the answer is obviously not nothing. What we mean by not nothing will define what is not going to be called conservatism, perhaps, or not even the Republican Party, because these are increasingly obviously corrupt. If there's something worse than conservative and Republican corruption, it's how obviously impotent they are. These people will not do anything, and people who don't do anything will be pushed out of the way. Somebody else will do something. It's not going to be conservatism. It's going to be very online conservatism. It's going to be people who have a hatred of woke mobs and of the billionaire elites who profit from woke mobs and in turn enable them. That's the kind of sentiment and experience required to want to do something about this. 
Will this form some coalition? Will people do anything about this? Is there any way for the electorate of the Republican Party to tie up with the primarily online experience that functions as a vanguard, the preview of coming attractions of woke intimidation with the express permission or even encouragement of vast organizations, especially the Silicon Valley oligarchs? We're young enough that we will find out. And so uh, we have to hope that there's something to be done that's good. But the picture now is grim, and it is only out of understanding what we have to fear and being angry at the people who have betrayed their institutional roles that we can figure out where else should we look. It is senators like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley who seem to be doing something about this in the little way that is available these days, proposing laws that their own party is going to ignore. So it's not clear what it is that they could do, and perhaps they themselves need to realize just how serious the problem is and that symbolic gestures won't cut it. Well, here's the thing. At the end of the day, the problem they have is that the vast majority of the political electorate, they're Civil War reenactors, only they're reenacting 1980. The thing is, every problem is a problem of 1980. If you don't like the 1619 project in your school, you know, state legislatures decide what's in the school curriculum. But, you know, Republican state legislatures aren't interested in that when it comes to the Silicon Valley oligarchs. They could regulate the oligarchy so that there's something like public carriers. But at the end of the day, they don't want to. That would be the exercise of government authority. They're used to being libertarians. They're more pro-corporation than corporations are pro-them. They're more pro-corporation than they are for their own voters. They're more pro-corporations than they are for freedom of expression. And one, these habits are hard to break. If they break them at all, it will be only 10 seconds before they're voted out of office. I mean, I think the best example of this is Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina. Now, she's much smarter than William Crystal and the Lincoln Project guys. The Lincoln Project guys are like, yeah, vote for Democrats on everything and put us in charge of refixing the Republican Party later. And that'll never happen. Nikki Haley plays ball with the Trumpists. But at the end of the day, she's only playing ball with the Trumpists until she can get in charge and turn it into 2000. If Trump wanted to make America great again, she wants to make America 2005 again. She wants Bush's third term. And I thought she said something really interesting. Not her words, but basically, I don't like the social media oligarchs, deplatforming conservative sites. But also, there's nothing we can do about it. And we should move on. Nikki Haley's attitude is, I know you have problems, but we can't deal with your problems. What we can do is cut taxes on your bosses and invade Iran. But it was one of those things where you saw the contempt that she had for her own voters for the interests of the people who are on her side. These people were simply a vehicle for policies that will benefit somebody else. She was crudely exploiting them, but she did it in such a way that it was obvious what was going on. And the question is, you know, if and when Donald Trump loses, I mean, I suppose it's not impossible that he wins. Nobody can know the future, and we shouldn't pretend that we know the future. There could be upside surprises that benefit him. I can't imagine what they are, but my imagination is not the limits of the possible. But he'll probably lose. And after that, there's going to be a big fight about what the future of the Republican Party is. And one of the questions is, what does governance look like? You know, if you're patriotic, what does patriotism look like? Is it being a Republican senator who wears a flag lapel pin and then, you know, de-recognizes the 4th of July in order to save $600 million in federal employee costs? What does freedom of speech mean? Does it mean that four or five oligarchs can lock out your supporters because you believe in freedom of corporations more than you believe in actual effective freedom of speech? And those questions are going to have to be answered because, you know, for Ron Johnson, yeah, it does mean that. It does mean that, you know, you would get rid of all these patriotic holidays and you would establish Lenin Day if it was in exchange for a 1% cut in the marginal income tax rate. And for a lot of Republicans, you know, they're quite happy with having Facebook deplatforming most Republicans as long as it doesn't deplatform them personally. So, I mean, once again, these questions have to be answered. And the stakes of these answers are important. 
There the question is, do we live in a real democracy or do we live in a managed democracy? David French is perfectly happy living in a managed democracy as long as he gets to play the role of the purely ceremonial opposition, the kept oppositions that some Eastern European countries had during the Cold War. But for those who don't want that, what's effective? Are we just going to waste our time? Because once again, I think Sean Hannity as well stands in for a lot of this fake opposition, where I just remember watching Sean Hannity a couple of weeks ago, and he was just so bored repeating his own talking points about Joe Biden and Joe Biden being old and Joe Biden not having press conferences and Joe Biden being friends with Strom Thurmond. And, you know, Sean Hannity's not going to, we're not going to vote for you because you used to be friends with Strom Thurmond. That's Sean Hannity's big problem with Joe Biden. But I think Carlson took a failed shot at Hannity where he said, you know, there's so much of conservative conversation is pointless where you have these conservative websites and these conservative shows talking about these emails between FBI agents. No one understands what the hell they are, what the hell's going on, and nothing's changing. And school curriculums aren't changing, and healthcare isn't being reformed, and riots aren't being stopped, and you know, nothing real is happening. It's a whole bunch of motion with no actual progress. Once again, I think that Hannity represents that perspective where whatever the Republican Party says, Sean Hannity's going to parrot it. And if it's something else, he's going to parrot that. Because Sean Hannity's got a job to do. And his job isn't to make anything better. His job is to entertain his audience just that night. One of the reasons why Carlson has become a phenomenon recently, and once again, I'm not sure that talk shows at his level of intensity really last, is that he seems to be speaking from the heart and he seems to be speaking about stuff that matters. And it's unclear that the center right will be able to organize in a way that's speaking from the heart and speaking to what matters. I mean, you can talk about Cotton, you can talk about Holly, you can talk about Rubio and Cruz. The problem with Rubio and Cruz is that Rubio and Cruz are entered politics about four or five years before Holly and Cotton. And they basically entered politics as fake Ronald Reagans. And now they have to turn a helicopter into an airplane while you're flying it. It's not really going to be easy. Like Marco Rubio wants to. He knows things have to change. He knows it can't be 2005 again, but also he also really wants the U.S. government to invade Venezuela. He wants it a lot. There's a division between the fake Reagan that he prepared his entire life to be and what he knows he needs to become as America and the party are changing. Cotton has some of that problem, too. But I think Cotton and Josh Hawley have less of that problem. They enter politics knowing that it's not 1980 anymore, whereas Cruz and Rubio enter politics wanting to make it 1980 forever. And now they have to change, and it's not easy for them to change. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you see with a lot of young people, a lot of middle-aged people, as we saw since Paul Ryan was a thing, that these people are not the future. These people, somewhere when they turned 15 or 18 or 20 at latest, became 70 suddenly, and they were never going to change. And with other people, there is at least some hope, you know, like with Marco Rubio has uh, figured out that he actually is a Catholic, that that should matter to him, that these people care about family, they care about poor people, they care about uniting America, maybe there's something in that. All of a sudden, he is not delivering the pat speech on foreign policy, that sort of trash. So maybe there's a future, who knows? But indeed, now it's very slim pickings, and it is only as we realize that elite and elite institutions are weak impotent. They are not coming to save us because there is nothing they can do and they can't even imagine doing anything. Only in those circumstances can change come, because otherwise the population can just wait it out again. It's only when people who are doing well in middle-class Republican America fear enough for the future of their kids. It's only when the very online people who don't think they have much of a future begin to fear that there's more yet to lose from woke terror. Only then is it possible to make an alliance and to have leaders come up. We are now in this crazy situation where we're asking normal people who have lives to live to somehow rethink the national political situation. They can't. 
They're busy with other things. They have everyday concerns, and all those everyday concerns have been augmented by crisis. And in a situation where being ordered around, they don't know what is going to happen, and they are not allowed to do much anyway. So it will take the misery of the situation for anybody to realize that there's more anti-woke Americans than there are woke or woke exploiting Americans. And to figure out how that majority can turn into a coalition is not going to be easy. It takes experiences that mostly young people have. And as I said, a lot of suffering, fear for the future and anger. And maybe there'll be some way to deal with this. We certainly have to, have to hope for that, but as we have shown over our podcast, we are not hopeful people. We see the misery of the times, and we just have to admit it. This is really and truly the danger we are in, and we will have to deal with it. You know, if you looked at the 2016 Republican primaries, the most anti-Trump voters were, I'm trying to find the right way to put it. If you look at Wisconsin specifically as a microcosm, Wisconsin was the one place where the Republican establishment effectively allied with Ted Cruz. And that was the one place where comfortable, moderately conservative Republican voters allied with Ted Cruz's constituency, small government libertarians, and observant, socially conservative evangelical Protestants. That was the one place where conventional Republicans backed Ted Cruz. But even in this place where everything came up Ted Cruz, Donald Trump still did well in economically depressed areas. Even where Ted Cruz had everything going for him, the places where things weren't going well, people voted for Donald Trump. What made Ted Cruz's victory in Wisconsin possible was that car dealers and professionals and restaurateurs around Milwaukee voted for Ted Cruz. These are the comfortable people. The problem is the comfortable with the Republican Party that doesn't deal with the country's problems because the country's problems, for the most part, aren't their problems. I mean, you often hear about optimistic Republicans. An optimistic Republican is a Republican who um, has managed to avoid most of the things that are going wrong with America. The problem with that is there's not enough Republicans for that. So can you have a Republican Party where its leadership cadres are drawn from, well, the smug and deal with the problems that actually exist? I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, the Harvard professor, Adrian Vermeule. You know, he's a Catholic integralist, which I, as I understand it is a much stronger government. I mean, his term is submit to the Pope. Well, I'm not Catholic. And I don't want to submit to the Pope. And I don't want the U.S. government to submit to the Pope. However, one thing he gets right is that, you know, there is a public demand out there for governance. There is a public demand down there for governance based on unifying principles. To be fair, the Democratic Party, they don't agree on the principles, but they agree they're in favor of strong governance based on principles. Now, once again, the left wing and the center left have different ideas, but they agree that you know you should have strong government. On the right, you don't just have an agreement on what those strong principles should be. You don't have an agreement on governance. And once again, you have a significant fraction of the Republican Party that is quite happy not governing. You have a president who's a con artist whose idea of governing is tweeting from the toilet. And you have a Republican establishment, or once again, 1980s reenactors reenacting solving the problems of 1980. And whether you can get a leadership class that is able to offer answers for the problems of 2021 or 2020, and whether they can get the public imagination, that's an open question. And it's not clear who will do it. I mean, one thing you can say about Josh Hawley, you know, he might not have the answer, but at least he understands the questions. You can all, you can kind of say that about Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton's a little more hawkish than I would like in my personal politics. I like that Tom Cotton wants to decouple from China, but personally, I would like to decouple from China with the absolute minimum of acrimony. I want to be less dependent on China, and becoming less dependent on China is going to mean, since it's a democracy, it's going to mean public rhetoric. You're going to have to explain why you want to decouple from China. In this process, I would like to antagonize China as little as possible. It's a global power. It's got 1.3 billion people. You know, once again, I want what's better for us. 
I don't think Tom Cotton wants an absolute minimum of hostility necessarily. So that's my big concern with Tom Cotton. But once again, I think he's better than most. But is it just those two guys? Is there a rising segment of Republican politicians who can say, listen, guys, America's got problems. These are the solutions. Even when you look about who is going to be the next Trumpy person, usually what we think of as Trumpy is conventional Republicanism plus just a bad attitude. In other words, somebody who's for lower taxes but says he's going to drink the blood of the liberal media. That's Trumpy. But really, it's just another marketing hustle for old school Republicanism. So can you have something that is original and appropriate for the moment? but also um, gains the public imagination, also has constructive answers. These are a lot of interlocking problems. It's not one problem. It's four or five problems. And if you don't solve all of them, you don't solve any of them. So the answer is unclear. Whether anyone will find the answer is unclear. Or will you have like a party that just vaguely trails behind the Democratic Party? rather? So the Democratic Party says they want to you know, take down seven statues and the Republican Party says we'll only take down three. I mean, it's one of those things where you become an imitation of the other party because you don't have any ideas of your own. And your ideas that you do have are so unpopular that the only way you can even implement a tenth of your ideas is to adopt mostly a watered down version of the other party. And so that's that's the point. Do you get a real alternative or do you become marginalized? Do you just not win elections because not enough people want a politics based on bringing the top marginal income tax rate from 38 down to 28? These are all like legit questions, and there's a wide variety of possible answers based on what happens. Yeah, the defining fact in our time is indeed that the Republican Party and the elites of Republicanism, conservatism, more broadly, seem supine, cowardly, missing in action. And we understood why that was in the 80s and 90s, because Republican politicians had been born and bred as a minority party. But since 1980, that was supposed to change. Republicans started winning not just the presidency, which they had had half the time before that too, but winning the Congress for the first time in half a century, almost in 94. And this was supposed to change. It was going to breed young people who are going to have new ideas and who are not going to come up with habits of defeat and deference to the liberal faction in American politics. This has failed to happen. Those people who grew up who are now kicking 50 or something like that were obviously just as willing to obey liberalism so long as it didn't get too riety. They just wanted, you know, Paul Ryan tax cuts. And that's over too. Another version of young politicians is coming up that might be serious. But I agree with you, this is a very difficult matter, which is why I think that it's only misery that can teach people to take this seriously and figure out what's hurting them. Only when the hurt gets real do people stop fantasizing and admit we have this real pressing problem. You will only find out what the real problem is when it is hurting you. It will no longer be possible to deny it. It will no longer be possible to traffic in online or TV or talk radio fantasies. And then, you know, we'll have a different kind of political conversation. It may seem strange to think that misery is constructive, but we had better hope since in good times we didn't do better. The Republican Party that won everything in 2016 was committing suicide, not getting a new birth. And so something else that isn't suicidal is now needed. And hopefully we'll be able to speak to it. We'll be able to avoid the misery that we've gone through already and encourage new ideas. Hopefully this critical period is actually helping people realize that they are not crazy to be angry or scared. They are just right in a situation where they're institutionally ignored and that we are not alone and that we can change that. We can take some comfort in the mortality and fallibility of our enemies as well. They cannot win everything or get everything right either. We will have our chance. 
Well, I hope people will realize that some gloom is absolutely necessary so long as it is coherent and gives perspective. Our criticism is informed by a very serious perspective and long study of what is happening in American politics. We can say with some honesty that we have not been duped by the fantasies and the lies that institutions and politicians have been peddling for a long time, but also that we are not in favor of insanity. We do not wish to burn everything down. We do not wish to abandon things. We wish for there to be a Republican Party that understands that even if you don't like it, you are now the party of the poorer half of America. And those are real people and they are real citizens and they have the same dignity as the rest of us. And they deserve representation, which they have been denied so far. Become that blue collar party. Become that party of families that indeed it seems like only Tucker Carlson and a few people are even talking about. That's the future we are heading for. We are not going into blindness because we get basically what makes for a decent life. It's hard to figure out how to get there, but we are not in any confusion about where we are trying to get. And so hopefully this will be enough of a guide for people. The alternative to irresponsibility doesn't have to be one form of irresponsibility. Now, Trump is obviously an irresponsible figure. However, he only took power because of the irresponsibility of his intra-party rivals. And the answer to his irresponsibility can't be somebody else's irresponsibility. So a willingness to think hard about what went wrong doesn't mean you embrace some other form of fanaticism or fraudulence. It means that you take responsibility much more seriously. But taking responsibility much more seriously does not mean being a bourbon. The French, the Bourbons, but they basically said they learned nothing and they forgot nothing. The disaster that would happen for the Republican Party is for the intra-party debate to be between mountbanks, frauds, liars on the one hand, and Bourbons on the other. You know, that's a legitimate possibility. Embracing responsibility is going to be difficult. It's going to mean answering some hard questions, and not just one or two. It's going to mean a lot. It's going to mean having real answers about foreign policy, healthcare policy, tax policy, social policy, educational policy, all these things. You know, my big worry is that every alternative to Trump is going to become zombie Reaganism plus. Each candidate embraces zombie Reaganism plus one other thing. Zombie Reaganism plus child tax credits for one candidate. Zombie Reaganism plus screw China for another candidate. Zombie Reaganism plus education reform for somebody else. But at the end of the day, zombie Reaganism plus one other thing, it's just zombie Reaganism because the zombie Reaganism will eat the one other thing. It's not going to be enough. It's just a hustle. So you're going to need serious thought about what America looks like in 2020. Once again, I saw an article by Bobby Jindal. Bobby Jindal's a very smart guy. He's a former governor of Louisiana, didn't necessarily work out great for him, but he is a smart guy. And he says, you know, we need to change from what the Republican Party was. I'm like, sounds good. Then I read the article and it was all about China. And I'm like, oh my God, it's zombie Reaganism plus China. Where basically he's like, you change one or two things superficially so you can keep the underlying structure. And it's the underlying structure that's rotted out. I mean, you have a house where the interior walls are rotted out and people are talking about changing the shingling. That's not the problem. If the lumber's rotted out, you're not going to fix it with a paint job. And even a lot of Republicans who feel the need to say that things need to change, deep down, they think you can keep the underlying structure with just a paint job. And you can fool people into keeping the underlying structure by simply adding a paint job. And that's not going to work. Yes, indeed. In as much as there is still elite influence, this is its primary temptation. It's a hard lesson to learn, but there's a reason elites were tacitly tolerated, passively consented to for so long. Everybody believes in normal times leadership is nothing but temporization. 
wait it out. You have a bad moment, you'll have a crisis, but you manage it and then the good times return. Sure, it'll be a dot-com bubble. Sure, we'll have a 9-11. Sure, we'll have, you know, civil division and horrible protests of the anti-Iraq war. Sure, we'll have the 2008 crisis. Sure, we'll have the whatever the next thing is going to be, but the good times will return. But the good times won't return. It's crisis after crisis after crisis, and they're happening as surely in economics as in culture, as surely in legal revolutions as in political problems. This is not going to get better until, indeed, we have a very serious change in party. That means primarily figuring out who is your electorate and who wants to destroy your right to even speak out your political opinions. Those are your guides, and you listen to that or you will be politically destroyed. So, happily we have clarity at long last. That's the good news for today. Well, Pete, thanks a lot for joining me. It was always wonderful to talk through things with you because you don't bullshit. You have an astute sense of what is happening that simply is just not taken in by the discourse, the, the kind of daily fantasies of statements and retorts and objections and mutual accusations of hypocrisy or whatever. Hopefully, the sort of thinking that we do and our friends do is going to replace the sort of thinking that has gotten us into this mess. Meanwhile, all the best. All right. Thanks a lot, Titus.